0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, we want to welcome you here to uh, Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online as well as those of you who are uh, meeting together at one of our other campuses in South Calgary, uh, in Airdrie, in uh, Bridgeland, and also in Northwest Calgary. Okay, well we're continuing our study through the book of Colossians, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles uh, to the fourth chapter of that wonderful letter where Paul talks about joining God on his mission. I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, join me in reading our scripture lesson for today. so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let us pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you uh, for inspiring Paul to write these words. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us now to understand uh, what these words mean for us in 21st century Calgary. Um, Pray, Lord, that you would um, remove distractions. Lord, you'd help us to focus and then, Lord, you give us the courage, the will, uh, and also just a softened heart to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> so I'm sure that many of you uh, heard about the incident that took place in Hawaii a little over a week ago. I mean, who knows? Some of you may have been in Hawaii a week ago. Well, Hawaii residents and those vacationing there got a jolt of a lifetime uh, when they woke up to their mobile phone, kind of screaming at them, alerting them to this emergency warning. Uh, Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, later a message was sent that it was a false alarm. Uh, But for a number of minutes, of course, the people of Hawai'i had reason to believe a nuclear warhead uh, was headed their way. And given the wonderful relationship that presently exists between the United States and North Korea, uh, you can appreciate why the people um, on that island would have been very concerned um, having received this message. Well, later that day, comedian uh, Jim Carrey said... I woke up this morning in Hawaii with 10 minutes to live. And he went on to say a number of other things, which I will not refer to. Um, But he commented on how this was a defining moment in his life. And I'm sure it was a defining moment uh, in the life of many people in Hawaii that particular morning. I mean, how do you process knowing that you and your loved ones have only 10 minutes to live. So let me bring this closer to home. If you knew that you only had 10 minutes to live, would you be ready to meet God? What would matter most to you in those final moments? With the promotion at work that you've been obsessing over, matter to you in those final moments? I mean, would you get on the phone and say, listen, I want that promo. Do you understand me? It's time to get that promotion. I mean, would that be number one priority for you in those last 10 minutes? Would the size of your bank account, the size of your home, the, the, the model of your car matter to you in those final moments? Would the number of published books or articles that you've written, how well you're known? Would any of those things matter to you in those final moments? For me, the only thing that would matter is relationships. My relationship with God and my relationship with my loved ones and friends. In those final moments, I would tell my Lord how much I loved Him. I would tell my loved ones how much I loved them, ask them to forgive me (laughs) for anything, and I just hold them close. But if even one of my loved ones or a friend or even someone I don't know nearby wasn't in a relationship with Jesus, wasn't right with Jesus, I would devote the entire 10 minutes to prayerfully and lovingly talk to them about Jesus. Nothing. nothing would matter more in that moment. Death or the prospect of death has a way of removing all of the fluff, all of the non-essential things of life, and clearly defining what really matters in life. And for the Christian, the most important thing in life is knowing Christ personally and making him known. And church, here's the thing. If this is what would matter to us most, 10 minutes before we die, why wouldn't we make it a top priority in our lives now? And I'm not talking about becoming so obsessed with this truth and reality that we would quit living or quit our jobs and become full-time evangelists. No, I'm just talking about God's call to introduce people to Jesus being uppermost in our minds, being uppermost in our prayers. On a daily basis, as we live our lives, as we interact with people at work, in our neighborhood, or wherever it is that God takes us, we would live sort of with the reality, again, not in an obsessive way, but we would live with the reality that this person that I'm talking to right now could have a heart attack and die in 10 minutes. And we would ask ourselves, Lord, is is there anything that you want me to say or do in this moment? This is Paul's emphasis as he nears the end of his letter to the Christians at Colossae. I remind you that the primary purpose that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae was to clearly spell out who Jesus is, that he is the invisible God who out of love for us became visible, became a man, became fully human, not only to identify with us and to show us who God is, but to die for us, to pay for our sins against a holy God Making it possible not only for us to be forgiven, but actually to be a friend of God. But Jesus didn't just die. He also rose again, amen? And the same power that raised him from the grave is available to us to live in freedom and victory in this life. To have a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And here in our scripture lesson Paul essentially says given that this Jesus that I've just described to you is the way to this incredible peace and joy and satisfaction in life and forgiveness and given that this Jesus is the way to living forever with God in the next life then the greatest gift that you can give someone is to introduce them to Jesus. There is no greater longing in God's heart than for everyone to be in right relationship with himself. And when we join him in his mission, we are involved in the most God-glorifying activity possible because 1 Timothy 2.3 says, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the supreme reason that I believe that we who are Christians are still here on earth and not in heaven yet. Now, in the passage we just read together, Paul spells out the kind of person that God uses to introduce people to Jesus. And we talked about the first couple of principles last week, so I'm just going to review them quickly. First of all, God uses people who are actually passionate about introducing people to Jesus. He wrote this while he was in prison. And yet when he sent out his prayer letter, so to speak, <laughs> the first prayer wasn't that they would, they would pray that he'd be released from prison. That wasn't even on his mind. He asked for prayer that he might have an open door to tell others about Jesus. This was clearly his purpose. This was his purpose passion this was his priority in life now someone last week asked me whether this means they need to quit their job and make their um, full-time you know do this full-time and I said not at all and I pointed out that there's a difference between our vocation and our occupation our occupation is the work we do You know, be it an electrician or a homemaker, an engineer, a doctor, a business person, whatever. Our vocation is our calling from God. As Christ followers, our calling is to be his representatives in the world, to point people to our Lord through our lives, through our testimony. In other words, we may all have different work or occupations, We may all have different responsibilities, levels of authority, and different levels of income. But as Christians, we all have the same vocation, the same call, wherever it is we are. Last week, a person said to me, you know, God's given me the ability to make lots of money. And if I'm generous with it, you know, if I support the mission of the church... Am I not playing a role in advancing his kingdom? And I said, absolutely. May your tribe increase. (laughs) However, I said, even though you're playing a significant role through your generosity in helping us fulfill the mission that God has called us to as a church, it's important that you're mindful each and every day that God still wants to use you to make the invisible Christ visible at your workplace or wherever it is or whoever it is you interact with through your Christ-like spirit, through your character, through the good work that you do and through your testimony. You know, church, God loves to use people who get this, who work faithfully in their occupation or whatever work God has called them to, but who see their vocation or their supreme purpose and passion in life as pointing people to Jesus, who consciously and intentionally live this way every day with the awareness that at any moment, We may only have 10 minutes to live. And then we'll realize how important this is. Secondly, God uses people who pray for open doors and walk through them. Verse 3, Paul writes, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. First of all, he says, pray that God would open doors to establish meaningful friendships with people who don't know the Lord. That he would guide you to people of peace. Who are people of peace? Well, they're people who are open and receptive to you, who sort of like you, are actually open to spending some time with you. When you identify those people, begin to do life with them, have fun together with them, and be their genuine friend, even if they never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, pray also that God would open doors to meaningful opportunities each day to reveal God's love to someone in such a way that through your example or through whatever it is he leads you to do, they're moved a step closer in their spiritual journey to Christ or wanting to know more about Christ. In Galatians 5.25, the Apostle Paul says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit means to be alert to the leading and the guidance of God's Spirit in your life. When it comes to introducing people to Jesus, we have to understand that there is no greater power available to you or to me than the wisdom and the truth of God's Word But also, the Spirit's whispers and promptings in our lives, which I explained in greater detail last time. And what that means is it's important that as we go throughout our day, we remember that God is with us. And as we pray and ask for His guidance, He will begin to open doors for meaningful opportunities to serve someone or to have a conversation with someone, or just simply to listen to someone, or maybe tell part of our story with someone who's hurting and needs encouragement. The key is to walk in step with his spirit and to anticipate his whispers and his promptings, and then to step out and to walk through the door that he's opened in someone's life. When we pray for open doors and we walk through them in faith, God will use each of us, and he will use all of us together to make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. And then thirdly, God uses people who practice what they believe. Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now in this passage, Paul spells out two practical ways that we need to practice what we believe. First of all, be wise in the way that you act toward those outside of the church. I think we need to remember that really what he's saying there is just be wise in the way that you act with anyone, not just those that are outside the church. Be consistent. Author Lee Strobel tells of a time that he was an atheist and how one day his wife came home from a church that she'd started attending for a while and she announced that she'd become a follower of Jesus Christ and he almost blew a gasket when he heard that because he feared that his dear wife was now going to turn into a religious fanatic, a sexual prude, and that their marriage would be over. But as the days and weeks and months went by, he saw his wife change in a very good way. So much so that he couldn't dismiss it as just a temporary obsession. Her changed life spiked his curiosity. And in order to appease her, he agreed to attend church with her. And this is what he writes about that experience. He says, when I walked into the church as a skeptical unbeliever, my hypocrisy antenna was scanning the place for signs that people were just playing church. In fact, I was aggressively on the lookout for phonies, opportunism, or deception because I felt that if I could find an excuse for rejecting the church on grounds of hypocrisy, I could feel free to reject Christianity as well. Now, folks, the reality is the church isn't the only place where hypocrites can be found. I mean, you can find hypocrites anywhere. Where there are people, there you will find some who often say one thing and do another. I heard someone say once, when people say, you know, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites... I want to say, hey, don't let that stop you from coming to our church. We've got room for one more. (laughs) You'll feel right at home. All that to say, the expectation that Christians should be perfect or live nearly perfect lives is not only unrealistic, it's also unfair, because even though Christians are in a relationship with Jesus and are on a lifelong journey to become more like Christ, they're still human beings who are more than capable of sinning, of being selfish, and hypocrisy, being in their lives along the way. But having made that clear, I want us to, what I want us to take away from Strobel's story is when he was looking for a reason, or in his words, an excuse to reject the church and the Christian faith, one of the first things he was on a lookout for was inauthentic Christians. Or Christians who claimed to believe one thing but lived another. Which is why the Apostle Paul challenges us here in verse 5 to be aware of this tendency and to do all that we can to be wise in the way that we live our lives. Nothing seems to turn people off more to Christianity, it seems, than a Christian who says one thing and does another. Joe Aldridge says Christians need to be good news before they share the good news. If someone thinks that you're bad news, they won't even want to hear what you have to say about any good news. Let's face it, there is no greater influence than a life that's well lived. A Christian who lives a consistent and a compelling life. In Matthew 5, Jesus elaborated on this. In verse 13 and 14, he said, You are the salt of the earth. And then he went on to say, You are the light of the world. Notice here that Jesus didn't say to Christians, he didn't say, you need to be or you should be salt of the earth or the light of the world. No, no, he said you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. What he's really saying is you're the vehicle through which God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. In other words, if we're going to see some of the beautiful things in heaven actually show up here on earth, it's going to come primarily through us. Think of all the people that you know at work, at school, in your neighborhood, who do not have a relationship with God. If they haven't felt the need to explore Christianity or the Bible, isn't their knowledge of God and the Christian faith pretty much limited To what they see in your life I mean they may never read the Bible but they will read your life the question is what do they read when they read you what version of Jesus do they see when they read your life Jesus said you're the salt of the earth you know salt improves taste Let me ask you, are you living, or just existing? Are you seizing the day, or are you just putting in time and going through the motions? Is your Christian life a delight or a drag? Sheldon Von Aachen, in his book, A Severe Mercy, says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. However, he goes on to say, the strongest argument against Christianity is Christians. Christians who are somber and joyless. Some time ago, Irma Bombach wrote this. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, talking, humming, kicking, screaming, tearing hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Suddenly his mother jerked him about and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, stop that grinning. You're in church. (laughs) And with that, she gave him a swat and as tears rolled down his cheeks, she added, that's better. Erna goes on to write, suddenly I was angry. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the smiling God. Point well made. You know, a lot of times when I think of Jesus, kind of just doing life with his disciples and stuff, I, I just envision him doing a lot of smiling, a lot of joy in his life. I don't think you pick that up from Scripture very well but I just see him in that way. You know, folks, we are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We possess the greatest hope in the world. The greatest hope in the world. Even in the midst of hardships and uncertainty, when you look at it all from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, we have so many reasons to smile. So many reasons to laugh, to have some fun, and rejoice, and be glad, for this is the day the Lord has made. Amen? jesus goes on to say you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again and what he's saying there is if there is dishonesty in your life slander gossip impurity envy greed and the like if this stuff is going on in our lives, if we do poor work, if we don't pay our bills, if we don't keep our promises, if we're irresponsible, we've lost our saltiness, is what Jesus is saying. We've lost our impact in the lives of others around us. So let me ask you, as you examine your ethics, As you examine your value system, you know, the gods that you're really seeking after, as you examine your character, your morality, your relationships, your lifestyle, what version of Jesus do others see? Now again, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about the direction of your life. What direction, what path are you on in terms of being the salt of the earth? The fact is, we will fail at times. And the important thing is, when we fail, we're humble enough, we're honest enough to confess it to God and to turn around and to do what's right and pleasing in the sight of God. Bill Hybels tells of an owner of a large, successful business who uh, employed scores of Christians in his company primarily because he felt drawn to God. And he wanted to observe Christians in real life to see if they really practiced what they believed. And one of the things he found was that there are people who call themselves Christians, and then there are people who... Are really serious about their Christianity. And what he found was that Christian workers who are serious about their faith, they were conscientious, they were hardworking, they were kind, they were sensitive. And this had a very profound impact on his life. But what impressed him perhaps even more was the honesty of one of his workers who had been with the company for years but had run into some of these very sincere Christians and had been impacted and influenced by him and became a follower of Christ. This new Christian asked to see him after work. And the owner was concerned that the reason for the meeting was so this young religious zealot would be able to convert him. And the owner said this to Hybels. I was surprised when he came into my office with his head hanging low And he said this to me. He said, sir, I'll only take a few minutes. But I'm here to ask for your forgiveness. Because you see, over the years I've worked for you, I've taken extra supplies. I've abused telephone privileges. And I've cheated on my timesheet every once in a while. But I became a Christian a few months ago. And in gratitude for what Christ has done for me. And in obedience to him. I want to make amends to you and to the company for my wrongdoing. So, could we figure out a way to do that? If you have to fire me, I understand. I guess I deserve it. If you want to dock my pay, dock it by whatever figure you think is appropriate. If you want to give me some extra work to do on my own time, that would be okay too. I just want to make things right with God. And with you. Well, they worked things out. But for this unbelieving owner, this incident was the single most impressive expression of true Christianity that he'd ever witnessed, and it impacted his life. It wasn't a clever new gospel presentation, it wasn't a well oiled and rehearsed testimony. Not saying those things aren't important. What it was was merely a genuine and humble admission of wrongdoing and a deep desire to turn around and to begin living a God-pleasing life or in the words of Jesus, to be the salt of the earth. Now Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. You know, the Christian life isn't divided into the secular world and the Christian world. Your relationship with Jesus isn't a light that you turn on on Sunday and then turn off on for the rest of the week. You reflect Christ like a diamond reflects light. You reflect Christ wherever it is you go and whoever it is that God brings across your path. In Acts chapter 17, we find Paul telling a tough crowd in Athens about his God. And remember, the Greeks worshipped many gods. And so Paul decided, as he had a conversation with them, to tell them about his God. And in verse 26, he says this, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now here's the thing. Some of you want to change jobs, because you're the only Christian there. There are many good reasons to leave a job, but Paul says don't make that one of them. Some of you hate your neighborhood. You're thinking of pulling out. Or maybe you hate the coach of your kid's hockey team. You're thinking of pulling out. Now, I don't know the circumstances of why you might want to do that, and so it might be the right thing to do but let me remind you of what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying, God has uniquely placed you where you are so that people might find him because he's not far off. You know why he's not far off? Because you're there. You're his representative. You're his light in that place. And I know it's a bit overwhelming to think that, but God is entrusting those people in your sphere of influence in that setting to you with your unique personality and gifting and yes, with all of your insecurities, fears, and hang-ups. If you'll humble yourself and put your trust in him, he'll use you in ways you can't even imagine. He'll use you to show people through your life and through your testimony, there's another way. In fact, there's a better way to live. I love the way Howard Hendricks said it. He said, we preachers could never have that kind of impact because people know that we're paid to be good. You, on the other hand, are good for nothing, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And that's powerful. Powerful. Not sure about that one, right? <laughs> when you seek to live a God-pleasing life, wherever it is he's placed you, in time people will notice. And one day when they're in a crisis, they may approach you. They may not, but they may. Or they may just simply be drawn to you and ask, what makes your life so distinctly different? I mean, everyone else around this joint seems to be totally hung up with themselves. Their rights, their paycheck, their time, their entitlement, their right for a promotion. Why are you not like that? And when someone asks you that, I hope you have the humility and the courage to say something like, you know, there's only one explanation. And it's not me. You happen to be looking at one of the most self-centered people on the planet. If you see anything different than that in me, then I need you to know that I have a friend called Jesus who means the world to me. And he's been slowly changing me from the inside out. And so Paul says, be wise in the way that you act toward those who are outside of the faith. He goes on to say, be wise in the way that you interact with those outside of the faith. Look at verse 6. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, the reality is a a growing number of our biblical convictions are no longer shared by the majority of Canadians. Through the media, through government legislation, we are systematically and increasingly being portrayed as out of step with the values of our nation. And consequently, a growing number of people in our nation and in our neighborhoods who pride themselves as being tolerant have little tolerance for us because of our biblical convictions. And you know, we can't stop them from being upset with us, being angry with us, um, even hating us because of what we believe to be true and right. Right. We have no control over that. But we have control of how we relate to them. We can genuinely love them and serve them and live our lives in such a way that will cause them to look at the way that we are increasingly being portrayed negatively in the public arena. And say, it ain't so. I know some Christians. And how you are portraying them isn't accurate at all. They genuinely love people. Another thing we can do is to stop having a self-righteous spirit. Or being obnoxious. Or unloving in the way that we interact really with anyone but especially those who are outside of the faith. Paul pleads with us to be sensitive and gracious. In Matthew 12, verse 34, he said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, Jesus is saying what comes out of your mouth is actually a reflection of what's going on in your heart. If anger, contempt, Harsh judgment, criticism comes out of your mouth. Then there is anger and bitterness and a judgmental spirit in your heart. I mean, you may be able to fake it for a period of time. But when you're under real pressure, whatever is in your heart will eventually come out of your mouth. And we've all been in situations, haven't we? Where we were on the receiving end of some pretty nasty, painful bitter things judgmental things coming from the heart of another person on the other hand if there is love and grace in your heart then it will come out of your mouth as well to be full of grace does not mean that we compromise our biblical convictions it doesn't mean for example that we don't write a letter to our mp about our conviction on something But what it does mean when we write that letter or when we have the conversation on the phone with our MP or we have a conversation with our neighbor about whatever, we do so in a courteous, warm way. It means we listen and we make people feel valued and heard when we are with them. It means that Our spirit is winsome, it is sensitive, it's caring, it's non-competitive, it's non-argumentative, it's respectful. When Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, he means to make the conversation taste better through a joyful spirit and a fun-loving laughter. Just not taking ourselves so serious all the time. It also means to preserve, which is another quality of salt, to preserve the dignity and the uniqueness of each person and not humiliate them even if we feel totally in the right and we're in a position to do so. You know, we need to ask ourselves from time to time, is it possible that there are people who couldn't care less about knowing Jesus because they've been watching us for some time. They've been evaluating the joy or lack of joy in our life. They've been evaluating our attitude. They've been evaluating our values, the God that we're really worshiping, which may not be the true God. It may be success. They've been evaluating our lifestyle. And they've concluded, man, there's got to be a better way to live than that. God uses people who sincerely practice what they believe. And then fourthly and finally, God uses people who are prepared to talk about what Jesus means to them. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, you know, many people sort of make a bargain with God. Many Christians. They say something like, Lord... I'll commit to learning lots of Bible knowledge. I'll commit to learning theology. I'll write big fat checks for justice causes. Uh, I'll dig water wells uh, and I'll build homes for the poor. Um, I'll get in a community group. I'll even volunteer on the weekend to prepare us as, you know, in our services for people that are coming. As long as I don't have to ever open my mouth... And tell someone about my faith. Now here's the thing, when you befriend someone, when you spend time with them, when you serve them and you begin to invest in their lives, your friendship with them will go to a much deeper level and your conversations will begin to be quite personal with the passing of time. And if you're praying for them consistently, somewhere along the way I can assure you that God is going to open a door of opportunity to tell them what Jesus means to you. And I just want to encourage you not to avoid that or to be freaked out about that. Just go through the door, be yourself, and share what's on your heart someone once said preach the gospel to everyone when necessary use words and I like that in part because of all the things I've just talked about up to this point but it's not totally true I agree that sometimes we use words way too quickly Before we've even developed a relational currency with someone. But at some point, we need to be okay with opening our mouth and talking about what Jesus means to us. I recently read a story about two dentists who worked together for well over 20 years. The one was a Christian, the other one wasn't. They got along really well, they became good friends. And the Christian dentist prayed often for the other dentist. One day, the other dentist got a call from a good friend that he knew in university. And this friend said, hey, you know, my wife and I would like to meet you and your wife at such and such resort for the weekend. You know, can you make it? And so they talked about it. They agreed and they met up at this resort. And while they were together at the resort, somewhere in their conversation on the weekend this friend from university talked with this dentist and his wife about his love for Jesus and how it was changing everything in his life. And before they parted ways, the dentist and his wife committed their life to the Lord. When they returned, they were so excited about their new relationship with Jesus, they dropped by the house of the Christian dentist and his wife And they told them the wonderful news. And the Christian dentist said something like, you know, we've been praying all these years that you would come to faith in Christ. This is so, such good news. And at that point, the other dentist got quite serious. And he said, I really appreciate your prayers. I really do but why didn't you tell me about this sooner? You know, in Romans 10, 14, the Apostle Paul writes, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And you probably have read that passage more than once and you figured, hey, you know, that's, what's his name up there? Preaching, that's his job. But you know what preaching is? Preaching means to proclaim. It means to tell. It's not something that is solely limited to pastors. It's just simply telling. Telling the truth. Now most Christians resist talking about Jesus with someone because they're terrified of being asked a question that they can't answer. Well if you feel that way, I want to encourage you with the words of the great Apostle Paul. This is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I hope you're encouraged because, you know, this is one of the greatest giants of the faith, you know, telling us that when he came, when he says, when I came to you, I didn't try to impress you, with my knowledge, my wisdom, or my big words. I made it as simple as I possibly could as people would be introduced to, so that people would be introduced to Jesus rather than impressed with my knowledge and my eloquence. In other words, Paul's saying, when God opens a door for you to tell someone what Jesus means to you, don't focus so much on your lack of knowledge Focus on what God wants to do through you in that moment. Relax. Trust in God to do what you feel you can't do. If you don't know the answer to a question, say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this. Christ has changed my life. He's changed my eternity. And of course, offer to look and find an answer to their question. But in the meantime, share what's on your heart. Just have a casual conversation. Trust God with the rest. Remember, this isn't about you. This is about them. Your are concerned for them. And what's going to happen to them moments before they die? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for being prepared to give an answer for the hope we have within. I mean, the Bible encourages us to have an answer. I encourage everyone to grow in their knowledge of scriptures, to memorize scriptures, at least some of them, to learn how to share the good news of Jesus. But you know, what? I want to tell you something. I've never been in conversation with an atheist or an agnostic who thought they knew it all, who were there basically just to argue with me and to try to uh, show that they had superior wisdom than I did. Never once has any of those people ever given their life to Christ because they were just excited about having an argument. In fact, I've been in many conversations with highly intelligent people where I was convinced at the end that I had done a pretty amazing job and not only answering their questions but also explaining the good news of Christ. And even though they said, hey, that makes sense, I understand that, They weren't prepared to embrace Christ because in the words of one fellow whose life I will never forget, he was honest enough to say to me, yeah, I understand up here, but you need to know, I'm not prepared to entrust my life with anyone, including Jesus. See, it's always Jesus who draws people to himself. It's not going to be how intelligent or how great of an apologist you are. What God calls us to do is to pray, to show up and have a conversation, best as we know, and to trust God to use us and our words and our questions to draw this person to himself. You see, God knew what he was doing when he made you. He custom designed you with your unique combination of temperament, personality, talents, and experience. And he wants to use your uniqueness to impact someone in some way that no one else could. No preacher, no evangelist, no super-Christian. No one but you. And when you step out and you follow his prompting, he will not only use you... Be ready to be blessed because he's going to amaze you with what he wants to do through you. I'll close with this. Some time ago, I had a very meaningful conversation with an elderly woman at a funeral luncheon. And she told me she'd been attending our church for a year or so. And based on some of the things that she said while we were talking, I sensed she wasn't sure of where she really stood with god and i felt a pro- the prompting of the lord to arrange to meet with her which happened about a week later after some small talk i asked her if you were to die tonight do you believe that you would go to heaven and she responded saying you know i'm not really sure she said you know i've tried to be a good person I've attended a different church for, faithfully for most of my life. And I'd like to think that I'd be acceptable to God on that basis. But I just don't know. It was a very sacred moment. God had already been preparing her heart for that question. And what a joy it was to open up the Bible to help her to see the difference between every religion on this planet and Christianity. Christianity. I explained to her that religion is spelled D-O, do. Or trying to be acceptable to God. Trying to do all the right things. Trying to obey the Ten Commandments. Trying to follow the Eightfold Path. Trying to keep the five pillars of faith. I said, Christianity is not about do. At the heart of the Christian faith it is spelled D-O-N-E done. God is holy he's perfect and we're not because we've gone our own way we have sinned we have fallen short of the glory of God we can't fix this ourselves In our own strength, we can never be good enough. We can never do enough good to pay for the crimes we've committed against a holy God. That's why Jesus came. He took our place, He died in our place, and He paid the penalty for our crimes. In other words, it's done. The price has been paid. Your sin and my sin has already been dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ who died for you and me on the cross. And he longs for you to come to him to receive his free gift of forgiveness and grace through faith and to be his friend going forward. Well, she began a relationship with Jesus that day. And after wiping away tears of joy from her eyes, she said, Pastor, as I said earlier, I've gone to church most of my life, and yet this was never explained to me. Now I so wish that someone had explained this to me 50 years ago. And so she took my hand and then she said this, so why me? You have thousands of people attending your church. Why did you take the time to seek me out and talk to me about this? And I said to her, well, God prompted me to do that. But you need to understand for the Christian, there isn't anything more important in life than to introduce people to Jesus. Jesus. I got in my car, and as I drove away, one of the first things I did, I turned on worship music, and I was just uh, praising God, because you see, it struck me that I was just involved in the most God-glorifying thing in the world. And I thank the Lord for the privilege of being used by him to not only introduce this dear woman to Jesus and an ongoing relationship with him, but also to help her to have the assurance that if she only had 10 minutes to live, she would never have to question ever that she's going to go and be with the Lord forever. And folks, I say it again. That's why we, the church, are here and not in heaven yet. Would you please stand for closing prayer? I'm just going to invite you to open your hands and close your eyes and just take a moment to ask these two questions right now. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it you want me to do about it? This is where growth begins, friends. If we never ask those two questions, we're never gonna grow spiritually. So allow the Lord to speak to you right now And not just in this moment, but maybe this week. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you want to involve us in the greatest cause ever given to man. I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here who's not in relationship with you. Perhaps they have all kinds of questions. But Lord, I pray that you would help them not to push this into the corner of their lives but Lord they'd make it a front burner item they'd go after those questions Lord they would seek to understand what it means to be in relationship with you because Lord they will never find peace or contentment within until they find their peace with you and then Lord for the rest of us I just want to pray that um, You would help us Lord not to function on the basis of guilt or fear or any of these things that tend to um, come to us Lord when we think about introducing others to Jesus Lord help us just each and every day to begin each day with the prayer that you would open doors and then Lord we would anticipate the doors that you open and we'd walk through them in faith. We thank you, Lord, for inviting us to join you in this adventure, this faith-building adventure. And Lord, we know that as we do, you're going to not only impact people for eternity, but Lord, our Christian life will never be ordinary again we pray this all in your precious name and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen